This is Broadcast, Talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Jake Cantor. Coming down the Talking TV slipway this week, we'll discuss the great children's television revival as the BBC orders brand spanking new versions of Danger Mouse and Teletubbies. Uh, We'll also talk about the Norwegian phenomenon for slow documentaries following Sheffield Documentary Festival last week. Plus, we'll have previews of BBC Three factual drama Murdered by My Boyfriend and the slightly more cheery Alan Davis as yet untitled. That's all coming up on Talking TV from Broadcast. In the studio this week, we have broadcast columnist Stephen D. Wright. You got yeah. your head buried in a, in, a, in a copy of Broadcast, which I'm not going to complain about. No, exactly. Always. Uh, always catching up with what's going on. What's uh, What's been tickling your fancy on telly at the moment? Well, I'm hating it at the moment because it's full of it's, the World Cup. It's wall-to-wall football. Yeah, it's horrendous. It's like everyone's given up. And uh, and you'd think with, you know, 150 cable channels, you'd be able to watch what you like. Every night, it's like, oh, God. I hate this time of the day. Really? Every See, four I love years. It. No, no, It's no, just no. football all the time. <laughs> Three games a day. You can't complain about that. You know, the only time I celebrated was when somebody threw a rock at the BBC glass window. Also with us is broadcast features editor Robin Parker. Good to have you back on the show, Robin. Good to be back. Stephen mentioned they're giving it up. That's exactly what Jeremy Paxman has done this week. I think the pictures of him and Boris. It was like they had a carry-on music soundtrack and the two of them cycling and falling off and arguing and... Every time Jeremy shifted his, it moved Boris's seat, and it was hysterical to watch. It was really funny. But Do you think he's going to be missed? Affairs at no. all? Is he going to be missed? Is, yes, I think so, because he is. He's an icon. He's a you know. He's he's, he's a, I mean, he's a caricature of himself, really. You know. I mean, he's, it's like Robin Day when Robin Day went. You know. I mean, it's that sort of thing. They become a thing. Yeah, but no, it was. Uh, but he's not. He's not disappearing right. from our screens. You know what I mean? So the, that kind of you know, curmudgeonly, whatever it is refuse Nick or whatever he's supposed to be will definitely carry well, on. Apparently on Channel 4, that's uh, that's what uh, The Guardian said this week. So What, Paxo to go yeah. to Channel 4? Well, well, obviously, I bet he's desperate to get out of the BBC. Slagged it enough times on, on air. Come back soon, Jeremy. Let's get down to business, shall we, gents? First on the agenda, the rebirth of some iconic children's TV shows. Uh, it was revealed this week that Danger Mouse will scurry back onto our screens via CBBC, while CBBS also announced plans last week to revive Teletubbies. Add to this list Thunderbirds, The Clangers, The Wombles and Bob the Builder and you've got an explosion of nostalgia. But what's behind it all and is it welcome? Uh, Stephen, care to offer a theory? I got really excited by this because uh, I looked at the list of programmes and thought, oh, they're great, but I'm nearly 50. <laughs> How they'll play with the kids, God knows, but certainly from a, from a sort of nostalgic joie de vivre, I think it's fantastic, it sounds brilliant. Although at the same time, it could be one of those ones where it's all kind of, they take what was good and a little bit clunky about the original and polish it up so much so Refine it, doesn't, it doesn't resemble it. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's always that kind of slight risk that they'll lose what we all Some love of their about charm. the old shows. Yeah, Robin, you've got children. What what do you think they'll make of these these revivals? I mean, they, obviously they won't know the context, but... It is hard. I mean, a lot of I think parents are nostalgic, obviously, for what they watched in their youth, and that's probably what's driving a lot of these producers to, to revive them. If you do show, you know, things from 20, 30 years ago to today's children... And it's in a different sort of you know visual language. It's a lot, it's a lot slower. It's a lot less slick and so on. So it's about finding what the essence is of that and and keeping it part of it. Some shows have kept going. You know things like Postman Pat and Fireman Sam have gone through countless iterations, each with a different bit of technology that gets gradually better. Uh, Postman Pat had a big movie recently. Um, so it can be done, you know. And in America, things like Scooby Doo gets reinvented every couple of years. The Ninja Turtles are still with us. I don't think that in itself is a problem. It's whether the people behind it 
can find the essence of, of what made it so good in the first That's place. That's interesting. Uh, there's a few grumbles as well that this means less money for original commissions. Uh, what, what do you make of that argument, Stephen? Yes, obviously, original ideas are probably better than rehashes, but the kind of the love for these iconic brands is so strong that that argument's probably going to be drowned out. But what I thought was more sort of telling was the last line of your front page story, which said this is more to do with the commercial spin-off. <laughs> yeah, wringing value um, out of rights. And that cynical kind of, oh, hang on, because ka-ching, people are going to buy all of these old brands because it means something, as opposed to the stuff that's new that the kids actually might like. Mm. Yeah, the you know, parental approval built in. That's yeah. that's what it is. I mean, so that made me mm, suddenly my kind of nostalgic tear dried on my eye. <laughs> so you think it's all a little bit more cynical than perhaps uh, perhaps it, it appears on the surface. It's all in the mix, isn't it? And I think you know, even CBBC wants to have the familiar and the new, and they've got they've got to kind of get that that mix right. So if you've got one or two classic brands, I think the other, the other thing will be who what talent they get involved. I mean, something like Danger Mouse is very much associated with David Jason and Terry Scott. And Terry Scott's no longer with us. Does David Jason want to do it? You know, I remember, Probably not. I remember a few years ago walking past an edit suite and everyone was crowding out, looking in the window, and it was David Jason doing the voicing for one of the sort of cartoons. And it was amazing to see him because he does every voice. And he, you could see him little, in this little booth. And, and we were like, oh, because it was amazing to see. It was just this, this, you know, this great actor doing his yeah. stuff. And that's what these shows... I mean, that's the thing about a good kids' TV show is a good TV show full stop. Those were so good. It's whether they're better than the new ones, I don't know. Uh, let's uh, let's move on. Uh, Pact has gone further than it's ever done before on BBC commissioning quotas this week uh, and argued that the corporation should become a publisher broadcaster. Giving evidence to the Culture, Media and Sport Committee, Chief Executive John McVeigh said abolishing in-house production would liberate BBC commissioners. Uh, Robin, is this the sort of bluster uh, we can expect from Pact when it's got a job to do to look after its members? <laughs> I think so, yes. I mean, you know... Um, John McVeigh is a very, you know, tenacious debater and negotiator, and he's, you know, going all out to, to fight fight their corner. You know, I don't think it's a huge surprise that he's taken this to this next step. I mean, it's what you may expect of, of someone fighting for the Indies. I think what's what's interesting is that is the parallel argument that's going on from people like Pat Young about replicating the ITV Studios model as as that is perhaps a bit of a third way. I don't yeah. know. I don't know at this so stage which is going to win out. Incorporating in-house into mm. BBC Worldwide. It certainly feels like from the comments, you know, the responses we get in broadcast that there's more appeal for that side of things than the the all out. Yeah, line just getting that, rid of it. Don's taken. I mean, you know, the ITV Studios model works. It definitely works. They can pitch to everybody. You know why can't BBC in-house do that? I mean that would make it more more of an equal playing ground, uh, playing field. The, the big problem from an indie perspective is that the BBC in-house are seen as as preferential customers. They they don't have to try as hard. Well, they, they are, aren't they? They've got well, the guarantee. That's they? it. 50%. Guaranteed quotas, so they don't try as hard. Their ideas, you know, if they go walk in with three sort of so-so ideas, they're going to get one. You know, you go in as an indie with three so-so, you're thrown out in five minutes. You know what I mean? That's the that's what's behind this. Um, and and to me, the BBC wouldn't wouldn't lose anything by making their in-house much more uh, whatever it is ITV Studios esque. Do you know what I mean? Or even get rid of it completely. I mean, they, they'll all they'll, it would all work. The Indies could you know could absorb that talent or whatever, and it would get rid of the deadwood that is floating around in-house. There's a terrible stench of old kind of you know forgotten producers sort of living in small corners that carry you know they're fighting away there really is yeah. i mean it, you know it sounds terrible to say but everyone knows it there's a lot of talent at bbc in-house but there's also a lot of deadwood too and bbc in-house has found itself an unlikely ally in in channel four this week uh, channel four saying that it would prefer to have a bbc in-house model because producers get good training 
and then when they leave the BBC to set up their own indie, Channel 4 benefits from that. I mean, John yeah. McVeigh said he was very bemused by that, that argument. It uh, makes sense to me. I mean, most people train, learn on the job and they certainly don't learn at the BBC. The BBC way is a heavy-handed, bureaucratic, overstaffed way. The, the indie method is lean and cut to the bone and you know, everyone does everything. It's, a, it's much more multitasking because you've got to pay people wages. So the BBC model isn't necessarily the best way of training. And I don't, I don't, you know, nobody goes to the BBC first. They normally go to an indie, you know, work their way up. Then they go to the BBC. Then they go back to an indie. Then they go to the BBC. You know, it's a, it's a constant flow. It's not sort of, you know, BBC as a university of TV. Yeah. And we all graduate from the BBC. It's, it doesn't work like that. So that's a little bit odd. And, and Robin, I mean, we speak to commissioners all the time. Uh, do, do we think, as John says, that this will be liberating? They'll, that they'll be able to have carte blanche with ideas if in-house is abolished? Yes, I think so. And I, th- I think I agree with the idea that, that in-house you are not always motivated to come up with the best ideas because there is that safety net, if you like. And I think anything that can perhaps remove that has got to free up creative yeah. juices to the ta- for talented people. The, the competition is what, is what makes the survival of the fittest of ideas. Do you know what I mean? Mm. That's what the indie world is. You have to, you know, every idea is your... Is your is your lifeblood? The BBC doesn't work like that. Okay, let's move on. I thought we'd ponder uh, a couple of documentary tidbits uh, following Dotfest last week. Uh, first up, BBC documentaries boss Emma Willis spoke at a broadcast business breakfast last week, telling a room full of indies about her fascination for the Norwegian phenomenon for slow television. Uh, this includes twenty-four hour knitting. Uh, and boats sailing round fjords with no commentary whatsoever. Stephen, is is that that float your boat? Certainly does. She was saying that this might work on BBC Four effectively. I think it's already on BBC Four. A lot of the <laughs> yeah. programmes there are, 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 are very much sort of oral wallpaper or visual wallpaper. But no, I mean, there's definitely there's something in a kind of weird, you know, staring at the screen, letting it wash over you, kind of. Uh, escapism or something or you know maybe it's a drug i don't know it's just it, it, there is something in it you can watch literally nothing i mean reality tv is proof of that big brother big people watch it live don't they in the early days people used to watch them sunbathing all day and then the bosses stopped letting them sunbathe because they weren't, they weren't doing anything and they started saying you can't bring books in and you can't bring a musical in because you know, they were literally sitting or lying doing nothing but viewers still watched it i mean they will watch anything you still get that, uh, um, the equivalent of that, I guess, on things like Spring Watch. Yeah. And Channel 4 had their Easter, Easter Egg Live, live you know, I mean, which you know, was... Slamming Live as well. Wait, waiting for them to hatch, yeah. you know, 24 yeah, People staring at eggs. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, this does exist online. I mean, whether we need a, a whole TV station for it is another matter. You know, it's a, it, I remember years ago reading about the, one of the biggest selling DVDs at Christmas is a, is a log fire. You know, it's almost like a yeah. modern art stunt. Anything beats Mrs. Brown's boys. Well... <sighs> <laughs> literal groan. Um, or, or for you, or for you, would this would this be the viable alternative to the World Cup? We just have you know, 90, yeah, 90 would, minutes of that pitch watch, without the players. You know, a, uh, but a lot has been happening in the World Cup. Don't you understand that? Come on, it's not been a boring World Cup. The only thing I've seen is that Colleen Rooney flew in with sixteen cases. That's as, that's as much as my my football knowledge is. Okay, just just briefly away from the BBC, Stephen, I know you wanted to talk a little bit about this ITV Tonight uh, investigation where. ITV effectively picked up the bar tab uh, for a group of students. <laughs> well, I, I, uh, on a doc- it was a documentary about the health uh, uh, binge impacts drinking. of binge, about drinking, binge drinking, yeah. students, and of course the producer paid for the round of drinks, according to the Daily Mail and all the other papers, which said that the producer. Hang on, broadcast broke this story, oh, Stephen. Okay, well, sorry, Come on. sorry. Well, broadcast <laughs> broke it. Daily Mail 
embellished it. Yeah, um, and, and the sun splat the sun splashed on it. Yeah, no, because because this this is the worry that all documentary makers have, which is when you're out there and you're saying, so go on then. And they're like, well, we can't afford our drugs, our sex, our whatever it is, our our hitman. Or, but you've got a float of two hundred and fifty pound in your pocket to make sure the shoot works. So of course you cough up. You know, I mean, I remember. Is this years not ago, unusual then? No, of course it, it goes on all the time. I remember years ago we did a I did a documentary on um, binge drinking uh, a Buckfast wine in Scotland, and it was one of those ones where we had to be so careful because the you know we were essentially buying their alcohol. Do you know what I mean? And it's like, you think, well, is this real or is, are we faking it? But they were, you know, because it's a very grey area. And of course, documentary producers have a kind of, you know, omerta code of silence because you can't really reveal what it is that goes on on a shoot. You've just got to make it look like it's real. Is it is it right that ITV gets in trouble over this? ITV, no. The producer, yes, because it was a that was a, a rookie mistake, you know. But at the same time, I know what the pressures are like when you're on a shoot and someone's, you know, you ring the office and go, well, they've only got 20 quid. And you're like, well, Go and put, you know, go and put a tab on. Or so if it's a Somebody mistake, you, well, what, what, what's the solution? What do you do? Yeah, would you stop filming and therefore ruin a, a budget of a hundred thousand for the program? You know, it's a philosophical point. It's an ethical de- debate, a but it's not really. Until yeah. <laughs> so they don't work as a telly. But this is the problem with TV. I mean, TV is all fake. You always have a camera crew standing around watching somebody burst into tears, going, "I wish there was someone who could help me," or whatever it is. You've got ten people in the room watching that moment. Is that fake? Yes. On that bombshell, we'll we'll move on to the final piece in our new section, uh, which is our Commissioner of the Fortnight, uh, which is this week, uh, Channel 4's new real-time voting talent competition, The Singer Takes It All. Uh, fronted by Alan Carr this August, viewers will be able to command singers around a moving 18-metre stage by registering their approval or disgust via an app. Uh, produced by NML UK, the format will steal a march on ITV, which is launching its own interactive singing competition, Rising Star, next year. Uh, Robin, is this uh, this up your street? Do you think uh, Channel 4 can make it work? I expect they could probably make it work. I wouldn't say it's up my street. Uh, <laughs> I'm not a big fan of these kind of shows, and I'm not a big fan of Alan Carr either. So I don't think I'm not sat in front of the X Factor. On a no, night. funny enough. No. But I think I think you know it's 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 fine for Channel 4 to be in that genre. Some people have been saying, "Is this a Channel 4 thing?" Well, million pound drop ostensibly is a game show that could sit anywhere, but they gave it a Channel 4 twist, and I think they're doing the same here. Stephen, novelty or genuine genuine innovation? It feels like it's a steal of Rising Star. I mean, because that is. The, the format of the Channel 4 show... I can't is, imagine ITV are particularly happy about well, it. Well, it's exactly the same, it looks like. <laughs> Apart from a, a screen that comes up or down, the, the stage moves forward or back. I mean, that's it. Channel 4 are doing a naked copy, or so it seems. And the addition of Alan Carr, you know, it's kind of window dressing. Whether it'll be a good show, probably. But the fact that they've sort of copied this worldwide kind of format and putting their own twist on it seems really... A bit sort of, a bit, you know, weird, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, it's difficult to say. I mean, we'll have to watch it. I mean, I'm yeah. sure there'll be lots of other differences in the yeah. format. I mean, at the moment, on paper, it sounds like exactly the same show. Mm. And that always makes me feel a bit, uh, you know, why do channels do the same thing? You know, but that, I had the same argument when the BBC did The Voice. You know, why bother when ITV's doing X Factor and doing it really well? I mean, it's like, and you always get that comparison. So if Rising Star is bigger, because it probably is going to be a bigger show, you know, in terms of the money it'll make this show look a bit sort of... I don't think it's good to copy formats. I really don't. Channel 4 could have could have done anything. You know, they don't need to do a musical talent show. You know, it's a, it's a, uh, to me, potentially, it's a dying format anyway. 
whether or not the the technical innovation, I mean, is enough I, to rescue it. I mean, there was a, I noticed on Channel Five recently when the the new launch of Big Brother, they had a Channel Five app, and you could make an instant voting thing. So I did it on the night of the opening because it was one of those things. By the end of the ad break, you will have decided who. So right, quickly downloading, did it, and that felt quite nice that you could do a sort of real time vote. So there's definitely something in in that kind of interactive quality, but whether it's the exact same format as the big ITV blockbuster, feels a bit you know. Yeah. And Channel Four need an entertainment hit, don't they? Yeah, well, I was just about to say that. I mean, you know, their, their record in kind of new studio hits has not been great. Play a million pound drop, you know, has been on a few years now. That's it's kind baggage. Of, anyone remember that? No, baggage. Baggage came and went, and and they've, they've tried various sort of. I mean, obviously they had the jump, and prior to that, there was Famous and Fearless and all these kind of shows. Gogglebox has been a, a very different sort of beast that's redeveloped for them, for them at nine o'clock. They're now looking at studio entertainment. Channel Four have never really done studio entertainment well. I mean, Boys and Girls with Chris Evans was a total disaster, and that cost a, a fortune. You know, we're looking at a toothbrush, aren't we? No, that was no the toothbrush was the only hit yeah. really that they've ever had, and of course they did three pilots for that to try and get it right. So, it was Boys and Girls was after that, and that was the one where it was you know give them money and they spend by the end of the week and blah blah. Oh, it was awful. But okay. that's the thing when Channel Four tries to take on ITV in that way, they always seem to kind of I don't know they they either not crass enough or they're too clever or they you know what I mean. It's like sometimes you need that sort of ant and deck in your face. You know, we're all going to Blackpool. You know what I mean? No snobbery. Whereas Channel 4 often has a touch of snobbery about yeah. it. You know, it's a, it, it does sound like it might be a bit more irreverent. Um, it does. I mean, a million pound drop works best when it's playing it straight. When they try to be Channel 4 about it is when it's at its weakest. Mm. And they, you know, they put in some rude questions or something just because it's Channel 4. And you think, oh, that's a bit... Cheap. Okay. Well, look out for that on, uh, on Channel 4 in August. Uh, that's your news for this episode. We'll be back after this. So after a break last episode, it's time to reinstate our preview section. Uh, Stephen D. Wright and Robin Parker are back with me to cast a critical eye over some new telly offerings. First up, we'll head over to BBC Three, which has shrugged off its drama budget cuts to bring us Murdered by My Boyfriend. The one-off drama is made in-house and shines a light on domestic violence by telling the true story of a young woman who falls for the wrong guy. Here's the suspicious Reese rifling through the receipts in Ashley's handbag. Can I have my purse, please? Who did you go for a pizza with? Work, I told you. Who did you go for a coffee with? Um, Prince Harry. <laughs> You're funny. Who was it, though? I'm on my mask, yeah, look, I'm taking this for a doll's ass. But that was for tonight. Yeah, but we said we split the cost. Well, do you really need it right now? Got money for pizza and coffee. Pay me back Friday. Stephen, you uh, you had quite a strong reaction to this, didn't you? Yeah, I hated it. Um, <laughs> not because of its quality, because it was a great show, but because of the subject matter was just too powerful, too upsetting. The title, you know, you knew what was going to happen from the first second you watched it in that awful, grim, foreboding way. And it just became... I found it really difficult to watch because it was it was almost scary. I understand the reasons behind it, but I didn't enjoy it at all. Interesting, because I really right loved relief. it. I really loved it. Yeah. I thought it was clever. I thought the fact that you knew what was going to happen 
didn't affect it particularly because it still was suspenseful and it built as the yeah. episode went on. There I don't know. I have, I have a very violent, well, violent reaction. It's not really the, the best way to, to anything like this because it's a, such an upsetting subject. It was very upsetting. So it, it, I'm, you know, too soft basically to sit there and watch it, you know, whilst eating my tea. It's, it's, it was, you know, it's very, it was probably too powerful. Uh, and then I started to have that kind of thing of, well, you know, what, why am I watching this? It's like, what is this for? It's not entertainment at all. Is it just to learn not to beat up your girlfriend? You know, who needs to be told that in a sort of, in such an over the sort of top powerful didactic message? But, you know, incredible. I mean, and they were all great. It was a great thing to, you know, great acting, it looked good, but it wasn't enjoyable for one second. Robin, you're keeping quiet. I mean, I agree about the didactic side of it and I thought I was either watching a bloke being horrible to his girlfriend or the or the girlfriend out on like a hen night with her with her friends it seemed to, seemed to keep flitting between the two I mean I know it's based on a true story and I don't know obviously I know that person his real character or anything but it did feel a bit like there were very few attempts to sort of make him even slightly nice at the start it was it was quite clearly a bad from early on and then the inexorable conclusion was he was going to murder his girlfriend and I thought and I just thought could they take a bit more risk of, of of the odd scene here and there where you side with him a bit more? I mean, there was one scene where he's where he's like, "I do the babysitting, and you, I let you go out, and that's nice, isn't it?" And even and even that, you know, he's being pretty horrible. While he's yeah, he's being he's being vile <laughs> in that that's scene because that's, 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 that's the emotional manipulation. Isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. So there's not there's not there's not there's not even that. It's just she's just found a bastard and she's murdered by a bastard. And I, I did wonder whether in the real case was there yeah, anything I mean, more to him. To I mean, me, could, there, could there obviously any more it's of never as cut and dry. No. And, you know why women stay with such wrongans is obviously because there is a bit of light and shade that mm. didn't have much light and shade. And why she went back to him towards the end, I wasn't yeah. particularly clear on. Yeah, they didn't. They didn't really unpack that, did they? No, they were just ended up in bed together again, didn't they? Yeah. But, I mean, so... you know, but who is this for? Who who's watching this? Is it young impressionable girls who are just about to date or are dating? You know, controlling psychopath boyfriends who don't realise, or is it for people to sort of think, oh, it's just like the the, the guy next door? Or the... I mean, who's what? Who 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 needs to be told this story in such a kind of villainous kind of way it, it does it need to be that cut and dry though in terms well, of I don't know. I mean, you know at? it felt like something you'd show to to 16 year old girls in a school on one of those old-fashioned tvs they wheeled in to a classroom <laughs> if you compare this film to um happy valley recently bbc one which was all about a psychopath raping and murdering but they actually humanized that guy mm. and they and they turned your emotions uh, on its head because he he connected with his son he didn't know about and there was that awful moment where you started to feel sympathy for this utterly vile person and and that to me was more powerful because it wasn't so black and white that this was going to be uh, you know evil versus good I mean there was a bit of that but it wasn't you know it, it came away from that and you were you were sort of intrigued and, and puzzled whereas this film felt like from the first moment I saw the guy I hated him because I knew what he was about and and I couldn't. We're not giving anything away, by the way. Well, the title. Of, yeah, the title gives the it title away. The title gives it away. I mean, if I would have preferred a different title. I mean, uh, Robin was saying that he heard the, the the original title was a completely different one. It was just my man. Now, that I think would have been a more powerful drama because then I would have watched 
and I would have had that grim sense of foreboding, but I wouldn't necessarily have known. Mm. And I feel like that uh, Murdered My My Boyfriend, which is a very grabby title, but that feels like a documentary or a current affairs show, not a drama. because. But it does fall between those two stalls, though, to a certain extent, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I can't I mean, fault the programme. I mean, my problem team, was it, it had too much of an emotional effect on me. I didn't enjoy it, and I couldn't enjoy watching it. It was it was too powerful. Now, that's it's not a criticism. That's probably... You know my sort of response to it, and but I would have switched off had I been watching it, uh, you know, live because I would have got to the point where I can't watch this because I know what's going to come. Uh, we'll leave it there. Murdered by my boyfriend airs on BBC Three on the twenty third of June at nine pm. Let's move on to our second uh, review, which is Dave's Alan Davis as yet untitled. Uh, the freewheeling format brings together Davis and his comedian chums to talk rubbish in front of a live studio audience. The format, if you can call it that, is an attempt to capture the relaxed atmosphere found among comedians bantering backstage. Uh, in the second episode, the group meander around the subject of air travel and W1A star Jessica Hines reveals her own nightmare journey. I nearly got banned from Ryanair. You got banned from Ryanair? Nearly. I had to apologise. <laughs> and uh, then I was let off. I did apologise. What did you, what did you do? Or do you know, you're not allowed, I, as part of the apology, being not I allowed to say what you did. I waited for a long time for a piece of equipment to help me wheel my two small children out of the airport. One was a four-month-old baby and one was a toddler. And do you I mean a pram? And you're, you're pram. Wait, a pram. Do, you, do you mean a pram? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a technical piece of equipment. She was waiting for <laughs> a panzer. When you said that in my head, I just seemed... It's all like, about that high with wheels. Four see, wheels, something you put the baby in. Well, I'm yeah. he was at two trolleys with your children taped to them. <laughs> I've just been weird Sealed up in that safety, yeah. that yeah, safety like, case. No, and I got very... Just at, I picked up the phone and just... I, I had a four-month-old baby and sometimes, oh, yeah. you know, I was just... Angry. I was, on, I was at the ed- on the edge. So this, uh, this show's been stripped across this week and uh, each episode features different comedians. I think we've all watched slightly different episodes, which is an advantage, I think. Uh, so, I mean, Robin, tell us about the one you watched and what did you make of it? The one I watched had guests including uh, Bob Mortimer and Marcus Bridstock and Catherine Ryan. I really liked it, actually. I think Alan's a good host on this in that he's very fair about giving everyone their turn. And, and the danger with this, of course, is you've got lots of comedians... Lots to say, big egos, talk, you know, talking over each other. Actually, I think he, he hosted it very well. You felt like you were dropping in on a... It's dinner, quite a light touch, isn't It's it? a dinner party or a pub conversation, but he lets everyone have their turn. You know, it's just lightly formatted enough in that he knows where he wants to start each conversation and then let them go. And it helped me have someone like Bob, who's, who's sort of assumed this role now of a bit of a, a shepherd of comedy. You know, he's, with, with the, the, some of the things he's doing as a producer, is he, he works with a lot of comedians and sort of nurtures them in script edits and so on. So I think he was quite generous as well. So I thought it came across quite nicely. It will be dependent on the guests. And, you know, I'm not a big Marcus Brigstock fan, but I warmed to him in this. I thought Catherine Ryan was great and I thought Bob was great. And there was a good sort of camaraderie. Was there enough to keep you watching? It was long. It's an hour. It's an hour-long slot. I think there was just about because there were some funny anecdotes within it. It's not earth-shattering. It's the kind of stuff you might get, you know, in a, in a podcast. You know, it's, it's that kind of language. Yeah, yeah. It felt but, like but, a podcast but to more, me. But more tightly edited. I mean, the thing mm. with a lot of podcasts is because... Careful. <laughs> ours not included. Um, a lot of comedy podcasts in particular is, you know, it, it's all in there and it's not especially edited. And actually this, there was a bit of enough, enough rigour to it. Stephen? I enjoyed it, although the first episode was dominated by John Ronson being a bit yeah. of a, a pub bore. He's, which really annoyed he, he was, me. Yeah, he was. Because I he, found him going on too much. Well, this much. is the thing. He did that classic thing of talk over people, and and quite often cut off an anecdote when it was just sort of gathering steam. And 
Um, now that was that was show one I watched. Then I watched show two to see what, whether the, a different mix would be a different kind of feel. And the, the mix on show two was much better. Although I noticed on that one, mainly dominated by about two people. So whoever speaks loudest gets more time without necessarily being the funniest. But of course, this is the this is the kind of you know the potluck you take. You know, show two was certainly more entertaining than show one. And I'm now going to go home and watch show three that you just talked about because it was definitely watchable. And, and, and I like that slightly relaxed, slightly, slight, slightly shambolic, but still delivering you content kind of approach. It did feel quite... Um, it does feel different, doesn't it? Feels, it? Yeah, it feels, it feels fresh enough. You know, it's not that radically new, but it's, it's new enough. And that's what you want. you want. You want to hear people having fun. You want to feel like you're part of the gang, which you do. You don't feel, you know, that, that, the, the way they're sort of in the round surrounded by the audience is quite nice because you don't feel like they're performing to the audience. They feel there's like no, there's no interaction either, which I, which I'd no, liked. Yeah. I no. mean, it's, it's, you know, cause I wondered when I first watched it, I thought it was a bit like Top Gear where they're all surrounded by a bunch of kind of nutcases, but actually it felt like they genuinely were sort of riffing off each other and having a laugh on the table and talking bollocks and then talking really funny. And so there's quite a lot of biographical stuff. I mean, it was, you know, it, it was, it was good. It was good fun. You know? Just a, just a quick one. I mean, uh, there's a U.S. comic called uh, Paul Provenza, who says that uh, the Alan Davis as yet untitled show is a beat for beat copy of the Green Room in the US? I, I don't know if either of you have seen no, that. No, I've not seen that, but I mean, I, I, I've not seen it. I mean, I think his precise argument was, you know, not necessarily the format and the idea, actually the look of it. No, I've not seen that show, so I think actually he was talking a bit about the set and the way that they're. I watched the clip of it. It does look remarkably mm. similar. Mm. I have to say, but then but, I, you know, but I've seen pl- plenty of shows where people sit around a table surrounded by an audience talking. You know, E4 had a show uh, a couple of years ago with Michelle de Swart doing a weekly review where they sat around a table and talked bollocks. You know, I mean, that's the kind and of classic Ruby Wax format. had the, Ruby the, the, the Wax dinner party had a famous it, BBC mm. dinner party where they all got drunk, uh, which well, I, when I was working at the BBC at the time, we used to watch that again on the ring main. And of course, and, got um, After Dark back in the day. Yeah, and, and so, you know, this idea of sitting around talking with a bit of alcohol and a little bit of kind of, you can say what you like, there's no format, that's as old as a hill. So... It seems a bit sort of um, petty for him to claim the look. You know, sitting in a table surrounded by people with comedians talking is not... No one owns that. Nobody owns that. There's no, <laughs> there's no format point. That's the thing. I mean, that's the classic argument. But there is no format point in this at all. They are just sitting talking. There is nothing in it that they have taken from anywhere else. Because, uh, you know, they're basically having a round table discussion. Even this idea of naming the show after something that's, uh, that's well, talked about uh, that's during a... the programme, or is that just a... That's just an end point, isn't it's, it? Yeah, it's just I mean, a, it's, just it's, you don't even point. need the end point. You don't, no. Nobody cares about that bit, you know what I mean? It's not, it's, it, it, I mean, to me, it feels a bit sort of desperate on, on this American comedian's uh, or American producer's part. Mm. Yeah, um, and it, I mean it's both episodes. So two episodes have gone out. Um, three, I think. three, sorry, three. Um, mm. uh, probably four by the time this podcast is published. But mm. the first two episodes got um, four hundred thousand viewers, pretty much on the nose. Um, so it held up. With the Do you fo- think that's enough for Dave? I think with the football on, that's not bad. It can't be a very expensive show to make. No. I think I think they'll they'll like that. They Mini can... cab to uh, Riverside Studios is basically the most expensive part of the format. <laughs> <laughs> taking, the, uh, taking the star there and back, that's it. And I well, would say the, um, the sort of the format point we discussed and the, the idea of having a title, I think the main point of that is to create a hashtag, isn't it? And to, just to, uh, perhaps a slightly desperate point to get people talking. I don't know if they are talking or not, I haven't really noticed that, but then I haven't really been... I mean, you know, you can tell from a producer's perspective, they obviously do have set pieces they're going to talk about because Alan Davis mentions them in the first five minutes. So it's not as freewheeling as you think. 
you know, but of course that's the that's the you know the invisible hand of the producer. You know, they know what they want to them to talk about, and if he doesn't, and if the subject matter goes too far, Alan Davis will bring it back. So you know, there is obviously some thought and control on this. It's not, you know, I mean, I was a little bit disappointed. I wanted to see a bit more of the Ruby Wax get really, really drunk, and talk about anything. And and when we were at the BBC, famously after one episode, because they used to record it about three o'clock in the afternoon, so they would they would be drinking all day. And then about five or six o'clock or whatever, they started wandering around the studios and then they were sort of sitting on the grandstand set and messing about, and all, you know, because so, they were really drunk. So maybe ply them with a bit more booze. More, um, more drink. More drink, I'd, more I'd drink. I'd love to see them out of control. What situation isn't made better by more drink? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Alan Davis, as yet untitled, is made by Phil McIntyre Television and Grand Scheme. The final episode airs on Friday the 20th of June on Dave. Uh, that's all we've got for you this episode. My thanks to Stephen D. Wright and Robin Parker, and thanks to you for listening. I've been Jake Cantor, the producer was Matt Hill, and until next time, goodbye. You've been listening to Broadcast, talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. 